I am here because stablecoins, crypto definitely, but stablecoins in particular, I just find very interesting. I, I think they're one of the best in since sliced bread. As infrastructure, as a means of transactions, I, I just think it's adding a lot of value to millions of people across the continent. And I am for, as a personal individual, I am big on the increased adoption of that. In this episode of Crypto at Scale, we're exploring what might be crypto's killer app, stablecoins. According to data from Coinmetrics, cumulative stablecoin volumes are at a $9 trillion annualized run rate, exceeding the volumes of all major card networks except for Visa. And across the African continent, stablecoins are finding meaningful uptake, particularly in markets with low USD liquidity or countries experiencing currency devaluation. In today's episode, we're going to explore stablecoins in two parts. First, a global perspective with Zhao Reginato, the VP of product at Circle, which is the company behind the USDC stablecoin. And second, a local perspective with Ngozi Dozier, co-founder of the African digital bank Carbon. This episode of Crypto at Scale is brought to you by Ripple. Anyone who sent money across borders to or within Africa knows how cumbersome, expensive, and slow the process can be. When it comes to remittances, Sub-Saharan Africa remains the most expensive region to send money to. And for businesses, trapped capital, slow settlements, and high failure rates pose major challenges. The current financial infrastructure just doesn't work very well for the modern global economy. Ripple believes that crypto-enabled payments can help. Ripple's payment solution, on-demand liquidity, enables organizations to settle global payments in real time at a fraction of the cost and without tying up working capital and destination accounts. By leveraging the digital asset XRP as a bridge currency, funds can be sent and received in local currency on either side of a transaction. And across Africa, Ripple is partnering with local financial institutions and fintechs to bring the benefits of better cross-border remittances to the region. To learn more and get in contact with the Ripple team, head over to ripple.com. Now, I must mention before we start that our conversations with Zhao and Ngozi were recorded before the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which led to a brief depegging of USDC where the stablecoin was trading at less than $1. We talk a lot in this episode about the importance of proof of reserves. And indeed, it was the concern about Circle's deposits in SVB that led to the temporary depegging. But it has since repegged and is trading back at one to one with the US dollar. Crypto at scale is not investment advice and is for entertainment purposes only. But without any further ado, here's Zhao Reginato, the VP of product at Circle. So I, I'm VP of product at Circle and I lead what we call the stablecoin product teams at Circle. I have been with Circle for a long time now. This is my eighth year with the company. And I led the build out of USC, our dollar digital currency back in 2017, 2018, when we launched it. And since then, stablecoins became a, a big topic for Circle. And today I lead, as I said, the product team, which is kind of the largest product team that we have in the company. Cool. So usually to start this conversation, we want to ask ChatGPT to explain this concept for us, right? Because some of our listeners may be coming to the podcast not quite understanding exactly what stablecoins are. So I'm going to start with a read of, I typed in the prompt saying, explain like I'm five, what is a stablecoin? So Zhao, I'd like you to give ChatGPT a score, I guess, at the end of it and maybe expand. So here's what ChatGPT thinks. A stablecoin is a type of cryptocurrency that is designed to maintain a stable value usually pegged to a fiat currency like the US dollar or euro or a commodity like gold. Unlike other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which can be highly volatile, prices that can change rapidly, stablecoins are designed to have a fixed value, which makes them more predictable and useful as a means of payment and a store of value. So stablecoins achieve their stability through various mechanisms such as holding reserves, 
or using algorithmic formulas to adjust supply of the stablecoin. Overall, stablecoins can aim to provide the benefits of cryptocurrencies such as decentralization and fast transactions while mitigating the volatility that can make them less practical for everyday use. All right. Do you want to give ChatGPT a score out of 10? Score out of 10? Probably a 9 out of 10. Yeah, no, that's oh, wow. pretty good. Nine, nine and a half. That was That was good. That felt pretty advanced for a five-year-old, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I, maybe I, yeah. Should, I should say explain like I'm two years old. <laughs> but can you explain a little bit, what is your definition of a stablecoin and what, what do you think the value of stablecoins is and, and what you guys are doing at Circle? Yeah, I think, and to continue the joke, because it's, it's super interesting, right? But that definition is pretty good. But I think what lacks is sometimes a little bit of, of the why, right? If you step back a little bit, why would you want a, a digital currency that is stable in nature, right? And it's not only about stability, because you could, stability is an arbitrary choice, and you could make a currency that is, I don't know, stable at $5 all the time. And what does that even mean, right? So that's not the only point. I think the meta point is that really, and, and we have come to that conclusion at Circle, and I think a lot of other companies have done that as well, is that there was an opportunity as soon as crypto and blockchain technology matured for people to go back to a vision that I think existed for a long time, which is the idea that money should run on the internet, right? And I think a, a lot of people for many years have been talking about this idea that perhaps one of the biggest gaps that the internet has had in terms of design is that it didn't have sort of a data format for money, right? We have grown in the last couple of decades to become accustomed to to pretty much every digital format, whether it's a media, conversation, video, photos, all of that being pretty well defined in how it, it gets transported over the internet. And we didn't quite have that for money. And when I talk about money, then I am referring to the concept of money that I think is more traditional or customary for just people on a day-to-day -day basis, right? These days we are debating, is Bitcoin money, is Ethereum money? And those conversations are super interesting. But if you go to a five-year-old or to Joe Smith on the street and you ask them, you know, what is money? They're going to tell you, well, money is dollars, money is euros, money is pesos and all that. So it's, it's what people are used to use on a daily basis. It's what they get their wages on, it's what they pay bread and milk with. And so I think part of the concept of stablecoins for us is this idea of bringing fiat currencies, bringing money as people know them today, but run them on the internet, right? And run them on, on these new technology infrastructures that we have, because that allows money to become 10x better or 100x better, right? And, and I think that's really the core concept. Then the next question immediately has to be, well, but how do you do that? And then as you use the chat GPT explanation, there are several different ways of doing that. We at Circle in particular, we have chosen this idea of pegging a digital currency to the fiat currency equivalent by just using full collateralization. It's sort of the simplest mechanism, but it's also the one so far that has proven to be the most robust, right? So the idea is for USCC, for example, that for every unit of USCC that we issue, there's always $1 that we received prior to that and that we keep in reserves so that every time that somebody wants to come back from that digital dollar from USCC back to a dollar that we have a simple operation to just give people that dollar back. That's sort of the construct that we focus on. We're definitely going to ask you about this collateralization question in, in a few minutes, but just sticking with the why initially, you talked a little bit about internet money being a hundred times better than traditional fiat rail. So can we expand a little bit into what makes it better? What are the sorts of opportunities to leverage a stable coin like USDC and, and what makes it better than the alternative or the traditional fiat structure from a sort of stable currency perspective? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Justin. And I think when you talk about that, you need to sort of broaden the concept of, again, what is money, right? Because as I said, money or currency is the perspective that people have on, on things like the dollar, the euro, pesos, whatever, pick your currency. But there are many different formats of that that people utilize on a day-to-day basis, right? So you have cash, right, which is very important in, in many markets, but it's also kind of disappearing in, in some more developed economies. You have various different types of electronic money. But I think what blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies have allowed us to think is really this concept of, of digitizing cash. And let, let me explain why we think that that's important. I am actually a, a fan of cash. Not that I think it's cool to, you know, just be holding tons of cash on your pockets. That, that's kind of cumbersome. It's, it's not a great medium. But I think we forget sometimes about some of the quality properties of cash that are quite, quite interesting, right? For example, cash does not involve fees as far as transacting, right? So if I bring you a $100 bill and I give it to you, you don't get $100 minus like a, a tiny bit of the banknotes that, that gets stripped and collected as fees. And, and that is because there's no intermediation, right? So it's basically a peer-to-peer transaction. And I think that's really an important element of, of how money can work that we sort of forgot over time. The other one is, is also because of that kind of peer-to-peer nature to the transaction is that it has instant finality, right? So the moment that the dollar bill leaves my hand and gets to your hand, that's it. The transaction is settled, right? I have no more of it and you have all of it now. And again, we don't need to wait two days. You know, wait two days and then check your pocket again and see if that banknote is there. No, it's like instant finality. It's a thing that we have grown as humans. We have grown accustomed to understanding. And it's also an instant transaction, right? And, and so... All of these properties are good quality properties of money that over time, as we have evolved towards electronic money, we kind of forgot or we missed on them because electronic money is not digital. I think it's important to differentiate, right? Electronic does not mean digital. So electronic money means we have moved to all these electronic databases that are controlled by entities. But because nobody could figure out a way to prevent money from being duplicated, right? You basically had to create this entire infrastructure over the, the last number of decades so that you could secure electronic money because otherwise people could duplicate an entry in one of these ledgers on a bank and, and there you go, you would be fabricating money. And all of a sudden we created a lot of intermediation. We created a lot of cumbersome parties involved in, in settling these transactions. We created a lot of cost. And so I think the idea of digital currencies and stable coins, they bring those quality properties of cash, right? So again, They have this idea of peer-to-peer transactions, instant finality, near-free transactions, but they bring additional benefits then, which is the fact that, first of all, this technology allows all of the transactions to be global, right? So that's a problem that you have with cash. You have only the ability to settle that transaction locally. Both parties have to be co-located. Now, all of a sudden, with stablecoins or digital currency, we can have a peer-to-peer cash-like transaction you know, involving somebody in Nigeria and somebody in Brazil, right? So completely global in nature, can go everywhere where the internet goes or an internet connected device goes. And I think the second element that makes that this technology makes it tremendously powerful, this is where I think the 10x or even the 100x comes from, is the fact that this is not only a currency, this is a protocol. This is a platform that people can build on top of, right? And I think this is the key innovation that happened to the space because I think you will remember that conversation that happened a few years ago in crypto that I always like to bring back to. Remember when people started talking about Bitcoin with a capital B and Bitcoin with a lowercase b? And that was to differentiate the idea of 
Bitcoin the currency, right? This asset that people hold on a digital wallet and they transact with versus Bitcoin with the lowercase, the infrastructure, the, the network, right? And how the network can be used for even for different things than, than settling Bitcoin transactions. It can be used for settling messages and, and a ton of other things. It behaves a little bit more like a platform. USCC and, and stable coins, they have that characteristic as well, right? So you have the two sides of the coin, pun intended. One, one side is the bearer asset, right? So the, the asset that people hold on wallets and they transact with and they get a lot of benefit from. And this is really the benefit that's targeted at either individuals or businesses, right? They have a balance on that asset. They can transact and they can benefit from all the things that I mentioned about how, how a digital and global cash-like currency has. The other side of the benefit, though, is really for developers, right? So all of a sudden, developers now have a protocol for money on the internet, have a dollar or a euro or a pesos protocol for money on the internet. They can write code against that. They can create applications on top of that. And I think this is what allows this technology to be so interesting because we have seen so much innovation already in the last four years since launching USC, but I think we're only beginning to scratch the surface of, of what is possible. I totally agree. I think what Circle has done has been an amazing feat and digitizing the dollar and turning it into a protocol, a platform that can build many things, I think is, if you told someone this like 50 years ago, they would have had an aneurysm. So let's look at the double side of the coin in two ways with regards to stable coins. So there's two types of stable coins, right? So there's stable coins that are pegged by algorithms and then stable coins that are one-to-one -one pegged or backed like USDC, for example. And then there's also centralized versus decentralized issued stable coins. Can you give us like a quick primer of what that means and why that's been in the news lately? Why both topics have been in the news lately? Yeah, I think definitely one theme that we repeat here at Circo is that First of all, the term stable coins has been a term that was defined and it was given to us when we launched USCC. It's not a term that we particularly chose. So we, we tend to use different terms depending on, on the context of how we're talking about what we do. But it, it's important, even though the industry has adopted this term, it's important to understand that not all stable coins are equal. And in fact, when you look at each one of those, they're fairly, fairly different. But broadly speaking, as you said, there are a few different mechanisms that people have created over time. To basically achieve this goal that we discussed in the beginning, which is you essentially want to bring a currency that people are familiar with, the dollar or the euro, and you want to bring a version of that over in digital form over to blockchains. And basically that involves some design of a pegging mechanism, as you said, that's usually all about that pegging mechanism and how you maintain that peg. Maintaining that peg can be done by the use of collateral. So that, that's usually one bucket and, and it's, it's what people call stable coins that use exogenous collateral. So they look somewhere outside of the construct of a stable coin and they say, what are we going to use as collateral to anchor the value of this currency to something that we desire, for example, the dollar? Our mechanism, as I said, I think it's the most simple mechanism, which involves basically defining that collateral as actual dollars, right? So customers send us dollars, we set those dollars aside, and then we issue the digital version of those dollars in response to that initial deposit. And what that does is that it reassures everybody that you always have those reserves ready to give back to people if people want to redeem USC back into dollars. 
we have been doing this since 2018, as I said, and we have evolved our understanding of how those reserves should look like. But today, just to give an example, today, Circo holds those reserves partially in, in cash, partially in, in actual dollar deposits on banks like Bank of New York Mellon in the United States and, and a few other partner banks. And it holds the remaining part of the reserves in the form of basically short-term U.S. treasuries. And that's held with BlackRock in the case of Circo out of the United States as well. But there are other types of stable coins that choose to use a different type of collateral. For example, they can use a crypto collateral. And usually the reason why they do that is to your point where is to, to have the solution be a little bit more decentralized, right? Because in the case of Circle, the solution is very centralized. There are many centralizing points to the solution. The banks that hold the reserves, there are central points to the solution. Circle, which is its intermediary that perform the exchange between the digital and the fiat form of the currency is, is a central party. And there are risks associated with you trusting Circle or trusting banks, even though we think that is a very robust and trustworthy solution, and there are risks. If you want to go more down the direction of decentralization, then you want to make sure that the collateral, for example, does not have a centralizing element. So you could choose to pick Ethereum as a collateral, which is the case of MakerDAO and DAI and how they have built their currency, right? So you can deposit an asset like Ethereum, and Ethereum is a decentralized asset, right? So it, it doesn't have centralization on that form. But also all the system is built on chain so that the DAI currency, the stablecoin, is issued directly on chain via smart contract. So again, there's nobody actually controlling that. It's all software on the internet. And the risk with those types of constructs, right, when they use cryptocurrency as a collateral is that you have volatility on the collateral, right? So a certain amount of ETH can issue a certain amount of DAI. But what if that amount of ETH fluctuates in price, right? So you might have more or less collateral depending on the variation in price. And if the collateral runs below a certain point, which is kind of a safe point, because it would mean that the currency would be unbacked then, usually what happens in those circumstances is these systems, they auto-liquidate that collateral, right? And they close those positions to make sure that, that the system is always uh, tight. So that, that's another type of construct. And as I said, it favors decentralization, but it has different types of risks that involved with that. And then there was a, a construct that I think in 2022 we saw being experimented a lot with. This is the idea of endogenous collateral. It's, it's the idea that you actually don't have collateral to issue a, a stablecoin, but you issue that stablecoin as a counteraction to the destruction of another volatile asset. And that's what Terra and Luna attempted to do. There's a lot of debates in the industry about whether that construct is even feasible, right? If it's even possible to maintain in the long term. I think certainly for Terra, it didn't work out. And it caused a lot of problems for the sector because, uh, as you said, where now everybody talks about stable coins and they try to put side by side USDC and Tether and USD and what happened with Terra and Luna and DAI and everything else. And all these stable coins are tremendously, tremendously different. And I think it's up for businesses and consumers to kind of make their own choice, but it is important for us to talk about the differences because the risks are tremendously different for sure. Yeah, there's definitely big differences. And to your point, in light of the sort of anchor UST debacle, I think regulators are looking at this space in, in the US in particular. I think there's other challenges to adoption that I'm interested in hearing you talk about, particularly in the context of Circle being one-to-one -one backed with fiat challenges of liquidity, for example especially in the context of African markets where there's such a sort of crunch for USD liquidity in general, which is driving the adoption of stablecoins up. But shifting gears, I suppose, to some challenges for adoption at scale, 
liquidity regulation, what sorts of things do you guys think at Circle that you're trying to overcome in order to get more stable coins out in the market and more people using them at scale? Yeah, no, you, you touched on actually some of the main points. Liquidity, I think, is the one that I would raise as number one. And let's talk about wh- what that means, right? I think liquidity, I always talk to the team. Liquidity is like thinking about Coca-Cola, right? Coca-Cola is the most liquid soda in the world. Like literally, it is their mission to always be at arm's length, right? So whenever people need a, a can of Coca-Cola, you should be able to find it with not a lot of uh, difficulty or without having to walk too much. That should be the case ideally for digital dollars as well, right? But for, for stable coins like USCC, where you have to issue them with actual dollars, right? So as I said, the way the operation works is you give us dollars, we take those as, as part of reserve, and then we issue USCC. The difficulty that that creates from a liquidity point of view is for people who have already access to dollars, it's easy for them to create USCC, right? They just got to send those dollars to Circle and we will instantly issue USCC for you. But what if you don't have dollars in the first place, right? And that is sort of the chicken and egg problem because the folks who are most interested in, in digital dollars, as Guerra said before, if they had access to dollars on a bank account, then it wouldn't be such a pain point for them. So solving for that liquidity in developed markets, I think it's something that we have done a really good job over the last number of years. We are really interested now in solving that liquidity problem for more emerging markets, right? So Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, all those markets that have a really, really strong demand, whether it's on the individual side or on the business side for settling commerce and trade transactions, there is difficulty in in sending dollars to Circle in the first place to issue USCC. So we are working, we have some things coming up later this year, but we're working to kind of broaden our network of basically banking partnership and, and banking infrastructure to allow for that dollar settlement to happen so that issuance of USCC can become more prevalent. But the, the other vision that we have as well is that the world cannot run just on dollar digital currencies, just on dollar stable coins, right? We actually need the digitization of basically every currency in the world. And, and let me explain why. The idea is that FX markets and, and you know being able to swap currencies is also something that is extremely cumbersome and extremely costly in, in most emerging markets in the world, right? There's a lot of intermediation. There's a lot of risk that basically implies an, an additional cost. And that FX component is so important as a base layer for a lot of other things that happen on top, right? Whether it's remittances or cross-border trade settlement, cross-border B2B payments, all that kind of stuff. We also believe that crypto and blockchain can just make FX a lot easier, right? Because again, we have innovations like Uniswap, right? Which is a basically an unstoppable protocol that can allow for the trading of any two assets completely on chain with no intermediation, with, with low cost and slippage. So why not utilize that kind of infrastructure that have been invented to also trade any form of currency on chain? The gap that we have, though, is that we haven't yet digitized many forms of of currency. And I think we are interested in that. We are actually actively in the market discussing how to build other stablecoins with a lot of other teams. I think Circle as a company, we see ourselves having a mandate to go and build additional digital currencies like Eurocoin as we have built and maybe a few others. But there are over 200 currencies in the world. I don't think there's one company in the world that will be able to digitize all currencies. That's just not the way to scale. So we are very interested in finding smart entrepreneurs in all countries and regions in the world that are interested in digitizing their local currency with the same quality properties of something like USCC, because we believe that model is is the right model. 
and then bring all those digital currencies, also all those fiat currencies in digital form over on chain and allow for very cheap and, and instant kind of swapping. I think once you achieve that, then you will be able to hopefully allow folks in, in most emerging markets, whether it's individuals or businesses, to actually get access to dollars in a much easier way. So we're looking forward to kind of making those advancements there. I really like what you said about the future of what Circle is working on, because I agree, like, yeah, there's 200 currencies across the globe, over 200, and very robust FX markets out there. But I think if we zoom in on the individual retail use case, there's a huge need for a stablecoin that people you know, will understand that may be pegged to their own currency or what have you. But can you give us a little bit more context as to what the future looks like for Circle and USDC in general with regards to the African region specifically? So I'll preface this by saying, like I said earlier, there's a really strong need for dollars. And USDC, USDT even have kind of filled that gap in a really incredible way. But can you tell us a little bit more about what the future holds for Circle and any stablecoin design or issuance or what have you in the region? Yeah, I'll start with the things that we're focusing on that are not perhaps region specific. And, and then I'll, I'll go back to what we can do that is more particular to Africa. We have been really focused in the last while and, and we'll continue to be focused on that in 2023 as well on this idea of making USDC a, a protocol, which is what we described earlier, right? So we, we think there's actually still a lot, a tremendous amount of work left to be done in really fulfilling this vision that there is a protocol for dollars on the internet, and then over time, expanding that then to other currencies. But USDC, because it's the longest running asset and currency that we have, it's where we deploy all the innovation, and then we port that innovation over to the other products, to so Eurocoin, and so on and so forth. So a good part of that is continuing to invest on on making sure that there is fast, cheap settlement for those transactions. So we continue to invest in bringing USC to new blockchain ecosystems and benefiting from the innovation that's happening in, in those different ecosystems. In doing that, and, and we have announced the launch of a product that we call CCTP for cross-chain transfer protocol, it is really, really important then as USC becomes prevailing in many, many different blockchain ecosystems, we have to make sure that it is easy for developers to to not have to think about which version of USDC they're using or which chain they're going to settle on. And so we have developed this technology called CCTP that, that basically allows USDC to be transported very, very seamlessly from one chain to the other. It's kind of an evolution of the bridging technology that exists today, but because USDC is an asset that holds off-chain collateral, we, we can sort of bridge it in a particular way. And we're, we're super excited to rolling that product out now in the next coming months. And we will have basically to have a continued investment in, in connecting that bridge to all of these versions of, of USC on, on different chains. The other thing, as I mentioned before, and then it becomes to be specific to what we can do in Africa, we are investing in, in increasing liquidity opportunities in emerging markets. So we are invested in, in making the minting, the issuance, and the redemption of USC a lot more accessible in regions like Africa, like Southeast Asia, like Latin America, as I said. So there's there's a lot of things that are going to come there. And then more broadly, I think for Africa and for some of these regions, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for partnering with local entrepreneurs. And this, this is the part that we were just talking about. I think there's always the interesting conversations to be had about embedding USCC settlement in existing fintech or, or payments products. And again, we can facilitate that liquidity perhaps 
a little bit easier when it is, you know, from a B2B point of view. And then those businesses can then be sort of a local agent to distributing USCC, given the particular use case for the consumers that they have in that region. We are super interested in continuing to expand like those opportunities. We have a strong business development team on the ground that, that is interested in having those conversations. But we also have our ventures arm in Circle Ventures that's basically also interested in seeing entrepreneurs building out more of those solutions. And we are keen to invest and, and write small checks to help those entrepreneurs. But those are some of the things that we are working on on some of the regions like Africa and ours that you mentioned. I'd say, yeah, that we, we welcome that kind of collaboration. Even us at MFS Africa, we definitely welcome it. I think one of the things that Circle has done a great job at in the last few years is regulatory engagement. And for example, like with me and the work that I do, we've made a very strong decision to only touch stablecoins that are, first of all, one-to-one backed and currently centralized. And Circle has checked a lot of boxes for our compliance team at a traditional fintech to be comfortable with, with wading into the crypto space. So that being said, with the pieces, with regards to regulation, your CEO, Jeremy Allaire, he spent a lot of time in DC. You've got a very robust compliance team and, and regulatory engagement team. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you think the challenges and, and really maybe even the promise of regulation looks like for Circle and for stablecoins in general? Yeah, for sure. I think the challenges are some of the things that we discussed, right? I think the challenges perhaps are some things that we as an industry, unfortunately, created for ourselves, right? So there was a lot of good innovation, and there was a lot of not good innovation. I think people confound sometimes what's software engineering with what's financial engineering, right? And software engineering tends to be on the good side of innovation. So anything that is good new technology that delivers good benefits, uh, you know, and is applied to finance, all of that is good. And we have seen a lot of that in crypto over the last decade. But then we have seen a lot of financial engineering as well, which is not really technology, right? It's just obfuscation of how things work, making things complex, but trying to pitch it in a different way to especially bad when, when it's for individuals who don't really understand what, what is it that they're consuming. And unfortunately, we have seen that in crypto and we have seen that in our sector, in the sector of stable coins, right? That has created a challenge for our sector in, in the regulatory environment, right? Because as we discussed before, not all stable coins are created equal, that's for sure. But if you have a broader term like stable coins, and if you have some of the catastrophic failures that we have seen in 2022, then all of a sudden regulators, as anyone, right, they hit pause, right? They think, well, hold on a second, I need to actually become even more educated because maybe I thought this was completely innovative and good, but actually there are some bad things there that we need to pay more attention. So it's very natural for people to all of a sudden hit pause, demand more education, demand more clarity. And that just means that the entire, I think, progress that we were maybe achieving from a regulatory point of view, particularly in the US, is going to be slowed down. I think that's just the reality. You know, things are going to take longer because of everything that happened, particularly the last year. But I, I still think we are optimistic. We are seeing the shoots of increasingly sophisticated regulation, whether it's in Europe with, with MICA, with the things that in the United Kingdom people are talking about, what's coming out in Singapore, in Asia, and hopefully what will come out in the US as well. I think eventually we will get away from this phase of a little bit of regulation by enforcement, and we will have clarity and we will have perhaps law that states 
what's the best way to build stable coins, how they should be built, how they should be managed. And I think that will provide clarity for the industry, for our sector, but for the industry as a whole, right? Because the experience that we have, and I, I don't know if it, if you share that, where is that there is a lot of fintech, there's a lot of financial institutions that are just waiting for that clarity, right? So that they can adopt this technology. They believe that this is fundamentally better technology than what they have available today, but they don't have that clarity from a regulatory point of view to take the next step. And so I think that will be positive. And, and as I said, we are optimistic that it's still going to happen. We might have seen a slowdown that we as a sector have created for ourselves, but we're still optimistic about it. I totally agree. I, I'm very optimistic as well. Even in Kenya, for example, the ETH Foundation was in was in Kenya last week, and they had some really thoughtful engagements with various regulators, grassroots communities, and businesses as well on the ground who are really pulling in that direction. So I'm definitely hopeful. I think Maybe people focus less on the line going up and more on the ecosystem growing and, and the use cases actually solidifying. I'm very hopeful and bullish on that. So I want to kind of wind down a little bit, asking you to possibly give us a prediction or a forward thinking opinion about what's next, like what's coming down the road, especially for stable coins in emerging markets like Africa and, and you're Brazilian. So like in, in Brazil, what are you hopeful for? What, what do you hope to see? I think we will see the digitization of more currencies. And perhaps, you know, just as the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, the dollar stable coins, dollar digital currencies will still continue to be the vast, vast majority of, I think, the stable coin sector from a volume point of view. But I think we are seeing, we are witnessing that already. Uh, we have tremendous amount of interest and a lot of conversations going on with folks who are creating stable coins in all different regions of the world. I think that will continue to be a trend in 2023. I think, as we discussed before, people now have a little bit more clarity, right? Even though we don't have that on a regulatory side, but we have clarity that models like circles, models like USCCs, right? Full collateralization, transparency. Even, uh, you know, albeit with that element of centralization that a lot of people have criticized, I think, particularly four or five years ago when, when the concept of stable coins started. But now people are beginning to realize that it is something that you should be able to live on with and, and the model is just more robust. We are seeing people leveraging those models in other regions to digitize other fiat currencies. And I think that is important for us because it will allow a lot of other types of use cases to be brought on chain and people will be able to rip the benefits uh, for all those use cases. So I think that trend will continue of, of basically seeing stablecoins flourishing in all types of markets and all types of currencies. The other trend that I think then that we also believe in is that I think the concept that we have today, we have two separate concepts, right? We have the concept of the underlying blockchain and we have the concept of a stablecoin, right? And the stablecoin kind of runs on the underlying blockchain. But I think I see a future, I don't know if it's, short term, perhaps it will take a little longer, but these two concepts will actually collapse, right? And I think people will realize that the use case for using fiat currencies on blockchains really has been the killer use case for a number of years now, and will continue to grow and expand. And there's a lot of room for the use cases around the native assets on these layer one and layer two blockchains. But I think over time, they will become smaller just compared to the size, the sheer volume of the other utility that we can see. And therefore, the idea of, you know, a dollar running on a blockchain will become just kind of the understanding that people have. And, and we will stop talking perhaps about a stable coin and the underlying blockchain, because I think experiences like sending USCC, but paying for fees in ETH or paying for fees in, in Sol, that is still tremendously cumbersome. And that experience has to go away. People have to be able to send 
$10 on chain to another party. And if they need to pay fees, they should just deduct fees from that $10 amount and not having to hold another asset. So I think those evolutions, we are seeing tremendous focus from developers, whether it is on blockchains, on wallets, or, or other parts of the stack to really fix that and fix that soon. And I think that is a trend that we will see. And all of a sudden, we'll realize that what we needed all along was, was as I said, just, just fiat currencies that run on blockchain. You're speaking to a problem that I've had myself. <laughs> right. Definitely. We, we face these problems every day on the continent. So let's wrap up with some recommendations. So we want to wrap the show with just going around and just asking everyone to just give a recommendation could be related to this episode, could be related to anything really in Web3 crypto uh, about what what they recommend. So actually, I'm kind of mad at you, Zhao, because you stole my thunder. <laughs> I was going to, I wanted to recommend people look into the CCTP, which is the cross-chain transfer protocol from Circle. Like you said, I think it's incredible. I remember hearing about it last year at Converge. It's basically, it essentially allows people to move their USDC or EuroC across chains. Like you said, it's it's a bit of an evolution to the bridge. Bridges, for those who don't know, have in, in the past have had not great press in that they're targets for a lot of hacks. I think also last week, Vitalik, we were at an event with Vitalik and he himself said he'd rather hold a million dollars in ETH on Ethereum than a million dollars in wrapped ETH on some other chain. So that's my recommendation is a CCTP. Go check it out. Just if you search for cross-chain transfer protocol and circle, you'll you'll find it there. Jojo, do you have any recommendations for us today? I would say if there are any developers and entrepreneurs in the audience, I would say, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, focus on software engineering applied to finance. Don't try to do financial engineering because I think most of what could be invented has already been been invented there. But I think we still have a tremendous amount of work to do on just you know achieving this vision that we all have that money can just function as any other type of internet kind of transfer. The other thing I would say is that, as we mentioned before as well, we, we are super, super interested in Africa as a region. So our doors are open to collaborating with entrepreneurs, with businesses in the region. So if you guys are interested in stable coins, if you have an idea for a business, if you have an existing business that potentially can connect to those rails, reach out to us. We are, as I said, our doors are wide open to, to discussing those. Yeah, that's a perfect way to wrap up. Where can people find out more about Circle and, and you and what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, you can check circle.com. You can check our, our Twitter feed as well. We, we tend to be very active there. We have a Discord around the idea of USCC and building on Circle. So folks can also find that on circle.com and connect over there. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Discord. So happy to talk to developers and entrepreneurs there. Now, here's our conversation with Carbon's Ngozi Dozier. I'm a co-founder of Carbon, we're an African digital bank based out of Nigeria. I am here because stablecoins, crypto definitely, but stablecoins in particular, I just find very interesting. I, I think they're one of the best instances slice bread as infrastructure, as a means of transactions. I, I just think it's adding a lot of value to millions of people across the continent. And I am for, as a personal individual, I am big on the increased adoption of that. So we, we spoke to Circle earlier about USDC and stablecoins. And the reason we, we've, we've asked Ngozi as well to come along is because we wanted to get a more localized perspective and on the ground perspective of, of what stablecoins mean for, for Africa, for the African context in general. So you recently wrote a piece on your Substack, which we'll link to in the show notes, titled Stablecoins, Boring But Yet Revolutionary. Can you give us a summary of, of that article and what also sparked you to write it? 
So I think when people think about cryptocurrencies, they typically think about, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, or, or the other 2 million alternative coins. And stable coins were introduced because of the need for stability or lack of volatility in, in pricing. And in doing that, I think it's almost like clean the image of crypto. You know, you can't speculate on, on stable coins because by definition, they're tagged to a fixed currency. In, in this case, you know, the USDC, the dollar. And so then it's more of a utility token rather than a, a speculative asset. And I think for various individuals or countries, stable coins are amazing when you think about I as a Nigerian want to get exposure to dollar, right? Because I'm scared of my Naira devaluing or I want to make a payment cross-border, whether it's in Kenya, China, Thailand, or even just like, hey, I want to save and get USD yields. So it's allowed millions of people access to assets that historically were denied them. You know, So if I want to invest in Amazon stock or invest in UST bills or even just make that payment without going through some middle person, then stablecoins give that amazing access and, and at, at low cost as well. So it's speed, it's efficiency, it's cheap. And I think that was the essence of the, the article. And also to say that this is just the beginning. I think these are the obvious use cases, but I believe that there'll be more use cases that you know we have no idea of yet right now as more firms, individuals innovate around the space. And how do you think about that specifically in the Nigerian context where devaluation and low USD liquidity for export and just a lot of inward remittance in general with high cost and, and fees associated with that? I mean, I would imagine that use cases for stablecoins are exacerbated in a country like Nigeria. And given the sort of uptake that we've seen, that probably proves to be true. But how do you think about use cases, whether the ones we're seeing or sort of future use cases in the African or Nigerian context in particular? So you're right. I think the use case in terms of a means to access foreign exchange is huge. And I'm probably over exacerbated because of the capital controls in Nigeria, but, but I think it's definitely a big one because we have limited dollars. So if I'm an SME and I want to make payments cross-border, this is a quick way to do that. You know, as we discussed earlier, if I want to even just invest and save money, it's quick way to do that. I, I think because the Nigerian bank system is fairly sophisticated in terms of speed of intra-country payments, that benefit that, say, stablecoins have in the US where the payment rules are not as sophisticated as, as many countries in Africa is not there because I can do mobile transfers, it's real-time payments. So it is a benefit in stablecoins, but not a big deal in Nigeria. I do think the FX element is huge. And the other element that I think we don't really talk about is the fact that it's also trusted. So the USDC run by Circle, I'm a big fan of because it's almost like they have their own reserve bank. So 80% of their cash they receive, I think, is in, is in treasury bills, 20% in cash in banks. So you know that your money is safe. And so I think that's an element where I believe can have an impact even in local settings. One of the things we see, and this is anecdotally talking to customers, is I'm a Nigerian consumer. I'm saving, if you're on carbon or other platforms, maybe up to 15% annually, right? But inflation is around 21%, right? So you're actually losing money. What we're seeing right now is individuals who are making a rational decision to say, I want my money to earn more. So I'm going to right now change my money into stable coins, get dollar yields, even if it's 4%, but I'm earning a real interest right now. Now, the danger of that is that savings, deposits, that's the lifeblood of the banking system. 
money is fungible. So if millions of people are now learned about stable coins, and this podcast will not help, it will actually exacerbate our problem. When they learn about the opportunity, they can shift money very easily. What that means then is that if you're a financial institution and you depend on deposits to unlend, then your source of capital is diminishing or increasing in price. And again, this is why I think the regulators cannot ignore it. The horse has already bolted. The individual consumers are voting with their funds and making rational decisions. When you now have that at scale, it's a potential problem for banks who have historically relied on 2%, 3% cost of funds. And all of a sudden, it's going now to different places, you know, different platforms, because the stable coins make it easy to exit, to go out and come back in when they want. The barriers to entry and exit are very low. We're going to talk a little bit with you. We have some questions about the challenges and what it means for these markets in a few minutes. But before we get there, just one other thing. You talked a little bit earlier just about FX, and you had also had an anecdote just about Carbon's experience with Lendable. And I suppose this is, from a startup perspective, a particular challenge of raising money or borrowing in USD and then having to sort of hedge local currency. So do you want to say a little bit just about that? And if you had the opportunity to raise on Goldfinch or you know, use stablecoins, what that might mean? So the challenge we face was that as a lending institution, and, and in many parts of the world, lenders like ourselves have access to wholesale financing where banks will lend us millions of dollars, etc. Using our loan book or even just our historic financials as collateral. We see how much you've made on these loans historically, so we trust that you can pay almost like your bank gives you a credit line. This is has been difficult in, in Nigeria. And so lendables are... Uh, financial institution you know, out of New York and Kenya that they lend to lenders. And so we, we brought, I think it was $5 million at the time to on-lend to our customers. Now, we lend in Naira, but because we couldn't borrow long-term funds in Naira, we had to go to Lendable. So we brought $5 million in dollars. And part of the requirements was that we had to hedge the dollars so that if there's any dramatic fluctuations, would be covered. Now, as it happened, I think we actually paid them off just before COVID, which was, I mean, if we hadn't, Lendable would own us right now. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the opportunity is a company like Goldfinch, which is basically an intermediary between thousands of individuals who have stable coins looking for yield. And Goldfinch takes those stable coins and then on lends to lenders like ourselves. Now, just for context, with Lendable, it was a five, probably a five-month process doing KYC, diligence, et cetera, going through our books, et cetera. With Goldfinch, there is a similar setup in terms of getting KYC and diligence, but the funding is much quicker because it's almost like a, a marketplace where I have $1,000 in stable coins. I want to get yield. I put it on the platform. And you've seen on Goldfinch where people have raised money in I think the first transaction was, I think there is about, I think it was three to $5 million in about 15 minutes, right? Now that's powerful. Now, if you take that and say, bring it into Nigeria, where imagine if you had a pool of potential consumers looking for higher yield, people like us who want that, and instead of going lender to lender and having the same conversation, actually having a centralized location and that decentralized funding mechanism, it's catalytic to Companies like ourselves, who maybe don't have the track record, you know, we're 10 years old, but who maybe have just started up and people are saying, oh, you know what, yeah, I, I don't mind, I'll place a bet on them and let's see, let's see what happens. So again, these are the things that, again, can happen 
you know, regulation aside, I'm sure there are different regulations around that. But I think we've only just started right now, you know, and whether it's even, so we're talking about lenders here, maybe it's funding artists, right? Maybe funding innovative programs, you know, it's very exciting. It is. And I think that you've touched on something really interesting. And I I think the use cases are, like you said earlier, we've only just started. We we haven't even fully understood what the scale of what we can do with stablecoins. But I want to like reframe the idea of stablecoins and in this ecosystem in Africa, specifically in the global south. And think of stablecoins as more of like a platform or like pipes or infrastructure that you can then build on top of. So the use cases you've just described, they're early use cases. But you've touched on a really interesting one with with Lendable. So I want to kind of zoom in on that a little bit with Lendable and Goldfinch even. Access to debt, especially access for businesses to debt, is really difficult in, on the continent. You're kind of contending with with a couple of factors that, that just are raising red flags everywhere. So it's, you know, Africa, red flag. You're in lending, red flag. Right. You're here in payments in Africa, red flag, right. red flag, red flag. Right. So um, <laughs> lenders, traditional lenders are just like, oh, it's too high risk. And they price that risk really high. So it's really difficult to access debt. Can you tell us a little bit more about the promise of originating loans in DeFi? We're actually going to have an episode about this. We've got a, an episode planned, but if you could tell our listeners in like a little bit more of a simplistic way of why is it easier and why is it better for the ecosystem if we're able to access and originate loans and debt in DeFi and crypto versus SMEs or, or even scale-ups and fintechs who are lending to access that from traditional lenders? I think the first thing I would say, and the beauty about if you like, think about stable coins is it's almost like it's a global platform. It's the same platform in Nigeria, in Thailand, in the US, in, in China, right? It's all a common standard. Now, once that happens, then you just have a, a larger and broader market. So it then means that, so you have talked about DeFi, the initial, the most famous platforms are things like Compound, where I can place a digital asset and borrow digital asset as collateral. Let's say I put down you know, $100 of BTC or Bitcoin. And I can now borrow $60 of, of USDC, a stable coin, and then I can use that for whatever I want, et cetera. So that's your almost like your copy and paste of your, your typical banking transaction where I want to borrow a million dollars, I put down a house worth $1.6 million, and I take that money and I do whatever I want to. And then if I don't pay back, the bank closes. Now, I think what's exciting about that is that if you use that stable coin as infrastructure and say, okay... If you take a carbon, we don't take any collateral. So using stablecoin or DeFi as a platform, if we're allowed by a regulator, which we're not, it means that all of a sudden I can easily transfer funds globally. So I can collect funds from customers in Nigeria. And if the regulation allowed, I could actually then start lending in Kenya, in Thailand, in Brazil. Right, because it's a common currency, USDC in this particular case. They're common pipes to send money, but also to get payment. And I think that then just allows money in many ways is, is information, right? So we can then easily transmit information as to where are the customers, you know, the best payers or, or where are loans very expensive because the banks there don't want to lend, etc. That is a marvelous world. And, and, and you know, you, you've, you've got, I think it was Afrexim Bank that were looking at some sort of common exchange for payments. I think it was called PAPS. That's a, a scenario where you are going to have to build new infrastructure, right, 
to one, send funds, to also convert funds, have different treasury schemes to make sure that when I'm changing Naira to SAFA to CD to pounds, um, everything's up and running. The stablecoin infrastructure exists already. The pipes have been laid. The rates are liquid at 24-7. So given the volumes, the speed, the information is, is there. And so that would be an opportunity instead of building a new to say, let's just take what is existing and execute. And so the potential for trade, for bringing down the cost of, of remittances or, or payments or cost of financing, because it could be that you know in Nigeria, let's say you know, we're 50 million bank accounts, maybe I only want to lend to a million of them. 2% of those customers. But I see that Egypt has a lot more customers that I want to target. All of a sudden, Egypt is open to me, right? And so in terms of revenue generation, you know, cost reduction, or even reduction of default, it's massive. So the world that you just described, you use the term marvelous. But then a bit earlier in the conversation, you also talked about what it might mean for a country like Nigeria in particular, if some meaningful percentage of users end up moving their savings from a Naira savings account right. to USDC or you know, equivalent stablecoin. And, and I guess shifting gears a little bit, we want to talk about, I think, the challenges to stablecoin adoption at scale and or the second order effects. So maybe we can start with the second order effects. You know, There's this question about dollar supremacy, perhaps in the context also of the e-Naira and CBDC. So I'm, I'm curious if we can just sort of follow this evolution further, like what's the sort of logical conclusion or what are the outcomes and what are the sort of challenges that then may crop up as a result of a greater uptake in stablecoins in this context? No, it's a good point. And the challenges on adoption should not be underestimated. Even as digital banks, we're finding adoption or customers shifting from their legacy banks to digital banks it's a challenge, you know, because the banks have spent millions of dollars historically on branding and building trust. And all of a sudden, you, digital bank, come and say, okay, you don't know where to find me, but trust me, I'm a custodian of your funds and everything will be fine. You know, it doesn't make sense, right? But then we have an office. Now, if you now say you've put money in stable coins, it's somewhere in the, you know, in the ether, no pun intended. For millions of people right now, that is not acceptable, right? We, I mean, we get people who want to deposit savings on us and they say, but I want to see your office first. I want to know where you are, right? So imagine now you're saying it's somewhere out there. It's decentralized. It's, it's stored on millions of computers. Trust us, you're fine. I, I think that that's a barrier. Coupled with the fact that you mentioned stablecoin, these are terms that I think only a X percent of people are comfortable using. And then it's inevitable that it is linked to all the scandals, whether it's FTX, BlockFi, Mt. Gox. There needs to be a, <laughs> you know, a high amount of PR done to if like, remove the linkage to, of, of cryptocurrencies, stablecoins to terrorism, scandals, etc. And, and I think there's a lot of work to be done. And that's just an adoption before you get into potential issues of, okay, I put my funds there. I've forgotten the password or the keys to get access to my funds. And even just the user interface that's not as clean and smooth as what we're used to. So the advice I give people is almost, you know, I know Greg, you talked about this, is use this stablecoin platform as infrastructure and don't even mention it, right? So you can be powering remittances cross-border using stablecoins. But at the end of the day, all the customer wants to know is, I need to make a, a payment in Kenya right? It's, it's in 50 shillings. Can you do that for me? What we're doing, I think, is almost like 
we're trying to sell a customer a Mercedes Benz and then telling them about all the chassis, the cylinders, the spark injection plug. They don't care about that. You know, will it get me from A to B? Does it have plush leather seats? That's all the customer wants. So I think cryptocurrency started off, you know, really talking about the plumbing and why it's amazing. And we haven't gotten away from that, which is just be talking about what problem does it solve for the customer, for the end user? I love that because I agree. Like, I think that in the early days of any new technology, it's really just surrounded. It's it's adopted by by insiders, by nerds. So, like I my, I always uh, liken right. it to SMPT. I always ask people I'm like, "Hey, do you know what SMPT is?" When people are like, "Oh, it's, I don't understand crypto. It's so confusing." I say, "Okay, do you do you understand what SMPT is?" And they say, "No." And the people that do say right. yes, I'm like, "Okay, you are one percent of, of of the of the world." Correct. But do you understand what email is? And they say, yeah, of course I understand what email is. Email is I press a button and it flies through the internet and goes to where it needs to go. SMPT, in the early days of its adoption, was only adopted by people who truly understood the protocol. So what stands for Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. And we've had the likes of Google, well, back in the day, Yahoo, Hotmail, whatever, have built, even Microsoft have built clients on top of that. And we called them clients right. back in the day, right? But now it's just email. It's just, you know, you just push right. a button and it goes to where it needs to get to. You don't need to understand how it works, but I liken that to crypto now. So that a lot of the people who are in this space are insiders who understand the intricacies. And, and honestly, it's, it's quite exclusionary in my opinion. There's some people who would like to keep it that way, but I think the crypto adoption at scale we're still having a lot of challenges and and you've touched on on something that, that I'm quite passionate about, which is really the mullet, considering using, you know, fintech in the front. So something that people understand right. uh, in the front end and then crypto powering the back end. So one of the challenges that you, you, you really articulated really well was the UX challenge, right? The user experience. Yeah. You've now talked about uh, regulation slightly, but but what are the current challenges you see and, and kind of what do you hope to see with regards to another big, big challenge, which is regulation? So I, I think Right now, in Nigeria, it's almost like a parallel process where the central bank has said that if you're a financially regulated company, you cannot touch crypto. You can't use crypto. You can't let your customers trade it. You can't use it in, in, on the back end for your operations. At the same time, they're also the central bank of Nigeria is also in the process of launching its own stable coin. I think we call them CBDC, central bank something coin. So that's, you know, on the one hand, you can be frustrated because we see stablecoins as a, a great means to serve our customers. You know, customers want to use it. And for logical reasons to improve their financial situation. And so we want to also help them. So that can be frustrating. On the other hand, the fact that the central bank is also, like many other central banks globally, also pushing its own coin, that gives us hope. Because then you know that there's a group of people who are in the space working to understand the challenges as well as the opportunities. And my belief is that it's just a matter of time, right? I think it's rational for central banks to be by default conservative and a bit circumspect of new innovation. That's their role. So that's fine. But to the extent that they can study these platforms, test it themselves internally, and maybe with a small beta group, and potentially use sandboxes, I'm very hopeful that in the same way that all these technologies that were looked at in a scan, you know, email were not very secure, now is part and parcel of the, the fabric of business right now. My belief is that you will find this happening all over the world. I think, yes, you know, I, and you've seen it, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's in India, whether it's in the States, it's slow adoption, but there's adoption. And I, I expect that 
that will continue not just in Nigeria, but in other parts of the continent. That's a nice spin to put on it. I think a, a lot of people will also say, as it relates to CBDCs, like, what are these central banks doing? Like, it's just such a waste. But in your view, it's them paying attention to and sort of playing around with the technology in a way that makes sense for them. Yeah. And also, I mean, central banks or central bankers, you know, they meet often, you know, they have common platforms, common pipes. And so once you have one that says, wow, this is really good. It's helped us with monetary policy or, or getting information or price stability. It's almost like a virus because they all need to speak to each other, you know, financially, almost like a SWIFT system. Then if one gets it and is also influential, you know, maybe one of the big, you know, G7 countries, then it's a matter of time, I think, that the adoption will take place. Yeah, for sure. So just moving on, I think, just to another future facing question. I mean, we talked a little bit about some of the challenges, some of the opportunities. I'm wondering if you think in this context of anything else that you wish to see or that you hope will happen to further the proliferation and adoption of stablecoins. Maybe it's something as simple as, you know, a name change like you talked about earlier. Maybe we need to find the email equivalent or something like that. E-money, that's not a good one, but maybe. But right. I, I don't know if it's that or just a sort of patience in, in the adoption, as you said before. But how do you think about what needs to happen next or what you wish to happen in the next five or 10 years for the benefit of stablecoin adoption? I'll flip the question and tell you what I'm scared of right now. So we, we've talked about, from our customer's perspective, the risk of capital flight, right? Because I have Naira, but I want dollars. So I'm going to move my money into a platform. The risk we see as a credit-led digital bank is you have platforms, maybe powered by consumers looking for yield, who can now say, you know what? Why can't I lend in Nigeria? Why can't I lend in Ghana, right? They've got lower cost of capital, maybe because they're in, in a low inflation environment. And so the price to pay is not much. Again, the same platform that you can use to collect savings from Nigerians is the same platform that you can send money to Nigerians. So all of a sudden, my customers can receive loans in USDC or in Naira because they can be translated easily. Anyone who has dollar can find Naira very easily. You know, we know, we know that to be true. So all of a sudden, platform in Thailand, China, India is now lending to my customers. My customers are now saving on different platforms. All of a sudden, and it's not just carbon, it is many digital banks and banks now have a diminished business because of that. So what do I want to see? I want central bankers to understand this reality that money is like water. It just flows, right? The consumers are going to make decisions. And so this is actually a risk to the financial system in country. If you cannot control your money as a central banker, then you cannot fulfill your mandate of whether it's price stability or inflation, et cetera. And so, you know, the solution for us is actually like, look, there's a, a limited set of people that maybe you want to work with. Open up a sandbox and just for a limited period, let's just see whether this thing is as dangerous as many make out to be, or maybe it has benefits. But it's a controlled manner with people, maybe regulated institutions that you trust, that you, you're still auditing on a monthly basis. And, and so it's not like letting the cowboys in. So I think a sandbox is, is almost like a, a nice halfway house where it can be like, we're going to let you do this for five months with your customers. And if at the end of five months, we don't like it, we shut it off. I think no harm, no foul there. We're going to ask every single interviewee who deals with regulators to share 
their podcast episode of crypto at scale with regulators so that we can yeah, get a direct audience so that that we're going to ask you when this episode comes out yeah exactly yeah. yeah and to be fair dealing with regulators what i have found is that you know it's like a church they're saints and sinners they're those who are passionate about crypto and they're those who are vehemently opposed so there are champions in there which is good and also even those who are against it you know for the most part are against it for valid reasons they're not Luddites, right? They're just scared that some of the risks, and there are risks that a new innovation brings, are properly addressed in a timely manner. I agree. I think it's dangerous to look at it as black and white and to think yeah. of regulators as these big bad people. But I mean, they're here to protect consumers, to protect the economy. Correct. So they will do that however they see fit. But yeah, we're going to wrap the show with a, a question for you, which we, we want to understand. Maybe do you have any uh, recommendations for our listeners? So in that audience is possibly regulators, people who are new to crypto, people who've been in crypto for a very long time. Do you have any recommendations on, on where people can learn more about crypto in the, for the, in the African context? I mean, it could be educational, but it also could be a, a company that you want to shout out or, or really any, any recommendation. And you can give as many as you want, actually, as well. <laughs> Good question. Of course, now that you ask the question, all the things run away. But look, I, I would say to, like I said, there are many companies out there doing great things. I don't want to mention anyone in particular, but, but I, I do think speaking to founders is a great thing. There, there's some great writers on Substack, primarily out of Kenya, actually, that have been doing a lot of, of writing on crypto and, 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 and stablecoin in particular. So I don't have any direct recommendations. And of course, as soon as this podcast ends, five will come up in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I apologize to all of them. But I, I do think, though, that one thing I would look at, I'll, I'll get annual report of Circle to really understand how USDC works. Because I think looking at it as a, a listed company with the reporting requirements of a listed company and the governance and transparency that they adopt does will give people a sense as to, one, what is behind this then and what it takes to build trust. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crypto at Scale. If you enjoyed this episode, please do consider sharing with a friend or a colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. For more updates from the show, follow us on Twitter at Crypto at Scale. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.